Last week, <clears throat> for those of you who were here, you'll remember that during the sermon, um, I kind of did a recap of all of the great things the Lord has done here at Redeeming Grace over the past five years. And one of the things that I noted was that the Lord has brought into our midst many new children um, that uh, have been born into the church during that time. And I stated, you know, there could even be more on the way that I don't know about yet, and it's honestly hard to keep track. Well, little did I know, I was absolutely correct, and so today I am joyfully thankful to announce that we have another new baby on the way. This marks six currently that we are expecting here within the church, and that baby is going to come into the Holt family. So, Penny's going to be a big sister. This is, going to, this is good news. We are so thankful. Everybody was sitting at the edge of their seat waiting to figure out, wait a minute, which one is it? Yes, the Lord is so good. He is so kind, and he has sent us another little one to be on the way. Uh, please open your Bibles at this time to Philippians chapter 3 and beginning at verse 1. Human beings are not always very good at knowing what they need. Usually, we determine our greatest need based upon our cravings, the things that we sense with our five senses that we desire. Let me ask, we've got several kiddos here today. Um, let me ask you guys, what is your greatest need, kiddos? Yes. Toys are your greatest need. There we go. Any other answer from the children? What's your greatest need? Rob, does he have one? Was that no, he's, thinking. he's thinking about it. Get back to me after the service. Toys. Like I said, we base our expectation for our greatest need based upon our greatest desires. If you were to be asked that question, what is your greatest need, you might answer that answer differently based upon whether you were wandering around in a desert for a day before you were asked, or if somebody pushed you out of a hatch in space, or if you were underwater, or if you had not eaten for 20 days. Your answer will be radically different based upon your feelings. However, whether you are in the desert or in space or languishing without food, your greatest need never changes. It is always the same. It isn't water, air, or food. Your greatest need is righteousness. If this world is all that exists, then temporary needs would be the greater need. If this is all that there is, then keeping yourself alive is the highest priority. But you are not just going to exist for whatever number of years you will be on this planet. You are an eternal being. You are an eternal person. From the time that you were created, there will never be an end to you. You will exist forever. And that existence will take place somewhere, either heaven or hell. And the one thing that makes all of the difference is righteousness. You must understand that God requires everyone who will enter into heaven to be perfectly righteous. That means that you must be absolutely without sin. The word righteousness simply means that you have lived up to God's perfect standards. It means that in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions, you are in absolute alignment with God's own character. Today, we are going to examine Paul's explanation of how he views his works, his efforts, his outside actions in comparison 
to his need for righteousness. Please follow along as I read now, starting in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful text. Lord, your word is like a two-edged sword. It is capable of dividing between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. It gets to the deepest parts of who we are. And today, we desperately need that. Lord, I pray that you would rearrange our minds this morning, that you would help us to think in accordance with the reality that you have set forth in creation, and that we would think about you in a way that is accurate. Each and every one of us have constructed our own perspectives of God. And Lord, we are often wrong, and we need your word to correct us, to help us think about who you are, and how we can rightly relate to you. Lord, I pray that we would have such a passion for knowing Christ, just like Paul does in this text, that we would see the surpassing worth of simply being your friend that can come to us through this righteousness that is gained not by the law, but only by faith. Help us, Lord, to understand it. And if there is anyone here who does not have faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sin, of their souls. Lord, I pray that today would be the day where you would conform them to the image of your Son by transferring them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right off the bat, I want to focus in on something here in the text, and I want to, I want to jump right to the end, because what I want you to do here is I want you to see the stakes do not get any higher than this. In verse 11, he reveals that your eternal life is hanging in the balance. The way that you understand righteousness makes all the difference between the being resurrected from the dead, which means to experience heaven, or to continue on in death for eternity, meaning the second death of hell. Like I said, the stakes do not get any higher than that. 
So what we are considering here is not a mere matter of opinion. This is a matter of eternal significance. So I want to ensure that we all know and understand what it means to have God's righteousness imputed to us. Philippians is known for being the book about rejoicing. More than any other book in the New Testament, this one helps us by reminding us to have joy in any and every circumstance. But what you need to know about rejoicing is that Paul's commands to rejoice originate here. They begin and are grounded and rooted in this, the understanding of righteousness. Therefore, you cannot just jump to chapter 4, for example, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice unless you get this right. There is nothing to rejoice about unless you understand this first. He is chaining real, genuine rejoicing to righteousness. It is here where he explains the very foundation of your genuine joy. So he is going to draw a strong connection between his call to rejoice in the Lord in verse 1 and trusting Christ alone for your righteousness. So right off the bat, you need to know that this is good for you. It is for your joy. Not only is it necessary for your salvation, but it also should make you happy. It's nourishing to your soul. Getting this right gives flavor and dimension to your walk with Christ as you understand what he has done for you. Now, it's helpful for us to know that Paul is writing this to the Philippians out of necessity. He is writing this to them because some false teachers had been spreading heretical teachings within Philippi. In particular, the error was a fixation on the idea that salvation did come through Jesus Christ, but you had to add to that some of the accoutrements of the Jewish faith. You had to add particularly circumcision. This group of false teachers is sometimes called the Judaizers. This is precisely who Paul is referring to in verse 2 when he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is not speaking about three different groups of people here. Rather, he is giving three different descriptions of one group of people who were perverting and manipulating the message of the gospel. They are convincing people that mutilation, rather a surgery, circumcision, is necessary for somebody to be accepted by God. They are attempting to push these new covenant believers back into the old covenant, saying you must follow the law of Moses. So Paul declares, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul undercuts their entire argument and refers to everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. He refers to us as the circumcision. That's a title that he gives to all believers. Now, obviously, this is not the name by which we typically call ourselves. This is not our common moniker. That's why you don't see a lot of church names with the word circumcision in the title. That'd be a little strange. But what Paul is, the point that he is making here is that we already have the righteousness that they are claiming we need to get by this surgery. We can have full confidence that we have already been given full righteousness that comes to us apart from works of the flesh. Paul argues that we must not, we dare not, put our, our trust in our lineage or in any other thing that we might consider to be uh, a confidence in the flesh. Moving forward, what we're going to do today is consider Paul's argument with the following three points. Point number one, 
Paul's righteous resume. Point number two, your righteous resume. And point number three, Christ's righteous resume. Let's begin by observing what Paul has to say about his own resume. Look with me to verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul makes a genius argument. He is going to play the Judaizers' own game, just for a moment. He is going to reveal that by their own standards, he outshines all of them. He has carried out all of the Jewish laws and customs to the letter. So if any of them think they have reason to boast, he has more. His resume is superb. His list of qualifications is excellent. And in particular, he is going to list eight qualifications that most of them could not claim. He begins with several benchmarks which are completely outside of his control. And I want to help us here because you might think that this would be harmful to his argument because what he is saying is that he has not worked for or earned these things, but rather he was born into them. However, that is not how the people of this day would have viewed them. Bloodline and parentage in our day are, for the most part, superfluous when you're filling out a resume because it doesn't necessarily say anything about your character or your work ethic. But in those days, people had a much better and a more realistic view that God is the one who places you into your family. And the thing that they would conclude from that truth is that he has structured your lineage in such a way that he has blessed you by nature of your birth. Therefore, they would have naturally viewed these initial statements as stamps of approval from God himself. God must love him more because he was not born into a Gentile family. He must love him more because he was not born into a family that was void of the truth. He must love him more because he placed him into a family that has these credentials. They believe that God favored Paul enough to categorically place him in this place of greater spiritual favor. Because circumcision is central to the Judaizers' false gospel, Paul leads with that example and says, Not only was I circumcised, but I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he followed the law exactly and in accordance with the Old Testament, where he did exactly what he was commanded to do, and he was circumcised on the eighth day of his life. We see, for example, the same thing occurring with Jesus when he was eight days old. Why does it care in the New Testament to tell us that he was circumcised on the eighth day? Because it is pointing out the fact that Jesus followed every law to the letter. He had to do that in order to fulfill all righteousness. He must have completed the old covenant in order to fulfill it and bring us the new. So here he says, Paul says, in the accordance with the Old Testament law, my parents pursued obedience and gave me the surgery of circumcision in a way that is superior to any of you. These people that he is writing to are primarily not Jewish. These Judaizers were people who were Gentiles primarily, but they had adopted some of these principles from Judaism and were attempting to draw them in to the New Covenant Church. And Paul says, you guys were all circumcised outside of the eighth day, but I qualify for the true obedience of the eighth day circumcision. Secondly, he says, not only that, but I am of the people of Israel. In other words, most of the people he's writing to were not Jewish. They were born into Gentile families. And he says, I, myself, am biologically of the line of Abraham. I am a full-blooded Jew born into a family with both Jewish parents. 
Biologically, I am part of a nation that God has chosen out of all the earth. God's old covenant people have had his affection set upon them. And so Paul says, I have come into the world as an Israelite. And then he adds to that that he was not only an Israelite, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we don't have a lot of time to break down all of the different tribes and all of the ways that they responded to God, but we can look at two examples of why this is significant. One is that if you compare all of the nations and their responses to the Lord, the one that seems to have the most obedience throughout history is that of Benjamin. We see that the tribe of Dan doesn't even seem to exist in the later parts of the Old Testament. They just disappear mysteriously, most likely because they have followed all of the pagan ideals of the Canaanites that surround them. And we see that all of these other tribes in the north, the ten, separated. It was only Benjamin that stayed there with David and became the two tribes in the south. They were a favored tribe. But it even goes farther back than that. Remember the twelve tribes? Do you remember that they are based in the twelve children of Israel? The twelve children, the twelve boys of Jacob? Do you remember how Joseph was the apple of his father's eye? Joseph was certainly the favorite. His father chose him out of all of his brothers to put him in charge, to give him this coat of many colors. But then when his brothers acted as though he had died and they sold him into slavery, at that point the father's affection went to the younger son, to Benjamin, to this child that he loved so much that he said, I will send all of you to Egypt, but if you take my son Benjamin, I will die. This is the sweetheart of the family. This is the one that he loves. So here we see that Paul says, I am part of that sweetheart tribe. And it is no coincidence that Paul's Jewish name was the same as the most famous Benjamite of the Old Testament, King Saul. Saul of Tarsus is named after that first king of Israel, Saul, the son of Kish. Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. Then we find here that he has a qualification that's a little bit more tricky to explain. There's some debate as to the actual meaning of it. He says that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Some argue that this is a reference to the fact that Paul could have gone into the temple and he could have gone to those records and he could have said, let me show you how I can trace my genealogy on both my mother's side and my father's side all the way back to Abraham with no outside biology. In other words, I am truly Jewish. Every generation is made up of Jewish people leading back to the patriarchs. And that's possible. That is possibly what this means. It's also possible that here he is referencing his exemplary life that he had lived in regards to his memorization of the word and in regards to his dedication to the law. He is saying that I am not a Hebrew who, like, let's just take the Roman Catholics, for example. I was thinking of this earlier today. This is true of every religion, including true, uh, the true Christian faith. But uh, there are many Roman Catholics who are not actually practicing. And they will say to you in this region, I I'm Roman Catholic, but I'm not a practicing Catholic. Have you heard this? I don't hear that as often with evangelicals, but there are truly people who are part of the evangelical Christian faith who will also say that they are Christian, but they are not practicing. Here, it's possible that what he's saying is, I am a practicing Hebrew. I didn't just get born into this. I loved it. I accepted it. I adhered to it. I followed it. I memorized the law and I did it. This is another way that he is going to emphasize his righteous record. But he doesn't stop there. He notes that his relationship to the law was to become part of the group known as the Pharisees. This was not just a lifestyle that somebody pops into and out of, like 
becoming a surfer for a couple years in college or becoming an emo kid or becoming something for just a little bit of time where you, you kind of step in, you dip your toes in, you take on the identity, you wear the clothes, and then you grow out of it later on. No, to become a Pharisee is a lifestyle change. The Pharisee party arose during the time of the Maccabean revolts against the Greeks when the Greeks had taken control over the people of Israel and then they basically fought against them and attacked them and they, they fought back and gained their freedom. During that time, there were many people who were simply nationalistic. They believed that Israel should be its own nation because they loved having their own authority. But there were some that were part of a true revival that said, we want to honor God. This revival that began was a good thing and it's the start of the Pharisee party. They were a revival in opposition to the Sadducees. The Sadducees were those who did not believe that the Old Testament was literal. They did not believe that miracles occur. They believed that God existed, but that he was not personal. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in resurrection. So here, these people arose and said, yes, this is true. Moses genuinely did part the Red Sea. The people did come through and experience the voice of God as they heard him booming down from that mountain. God did write those laws into those stones. The Pharisees believed God. And at the initial outset, these people were so committed to the word of God that they pursued him in every way they could. This was a genuine revival. But what took place with this revival is they, they took that seriousness about the gospel about the Old Testament truths about God. And they took all of that and they kept the external traditions. And by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, they had left behind the meaning. They had left behind the purpose of the law, which was to commune with God himself. So here we see that he says, I'm part of the Pharisees. I took the law very seriously. I did what it said to do. I want to share with you what happened to me when I went to Italy last time. I flew through Turkey. Uh, actually, no, this was when I went to Belarus a few years ago uh, to uh, teach at the seminary there in Minsk. When I was flying to Turkey, on the way there, I would say about 90% of the plane was filled with uh, Orthodox Jewish folks. And the whole plane, when the sun came up, stood up, they put on their phylacteries, they wrapped the thing around the head with a little box with the Word of God in it, they tied the thing around their arm, like the word says to do in the book of De uh, Deuteronomy. They got down on their knees in the aisles of the plane, and they looked toward the sun, and they prayed. They were doing something that everyone who was not Jewish on the plane would notice and recognize. It set them apart as different. It is important for you to understand that nobody outdoes a Pharisee. Nobody outdoes a Pharisee in obeying the law to its very letter. Paul did this kind of ritualistic dedication to follow the rules all the time. He was a rule follower. He was a rules lawyer. He was a stickler for every single jot and tittle of the law. He was a better lawkeeper than anyone who was peddling this false gospel, which he presses home now with his final two qualifications. He declares that he took this so seriously that he was willing to persecute the church in order to keep them away from teaching anything that would draw people away from his understanding of the law. He was willing to have people arrested, to be removed from their homes, to be separated from their children, and even to be killed in order for them to stop doing what they were doing. Why? Because he believed they were distorting the law of God. 
and he didn't see any irony in this at all. He did not see any irony in the destruction of these people's lives. And he believed he was doing God's own work. Finally, as if that wasn't enough, Paul pulls out the big guns here at the very end, and he concludes, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. There are three things that you need to wrap your mind around here in order to understand what he's really getting at. First, Paul is not exaggerating here. It's very easy for us to use language like this because we exaggerate all the time. It's just part of our natural language where we say things that we don't truly mean. Who was at the party? Everyone was at the party. No, they weren't. I wasn't there. Everyone was there. We exaggerate in our language, but he is not exaggerating when he calls himself blameless. He is stating with apostolic authority and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he was a blameless person under the Old Covenant law. Secondly, part of what Paul is doing here is highlighting the lineage, or the limitation rather, of the Old Covenant and how the New Covenant is better in every way. Whereas the Old Covenant consistently dealt with outward actions, the New Covenant gets into the heart. This is what Jesus said so many times during the Sermon on the Mount. He would say things like, you have heard it said, and then he would say, but I say to you. What was he quoting when he said, you have heard it said? This was the Old Testament. He is referencing the commands of God himself. This explains how a murderer can be someone who has never once picked up a weapon. He explains that you don't have to harm another person physically in order for God to view you as a murderer because it can occur within your heart. Adultery can exist inside of you because of lust. Actions are only an outward expression of what God sees as sin that already exists in your heart. So Jesus takes this outward old covenant law and he presses it home even further to your heart. The third thing that you need to see here is that it is vitally important that you do not make a mental parallel here between being blameless and being righteous. It is significant that Paul uses two different words here. Blameless means that nobody could look at Paul, no one here on this earth could point out to him anything that he had done to fall short of the obedience of the law. Nobody could assign blame to him, thus he is blameless. It does not mean that God could not find sin in his heart. Certainly God did. He is not indicating that he was perfect. He was indicating that no one could see his sin. And this is what he makes clear moving forward. Paul's argument of his great record of righteousness would have landed very powerfully with these Philippians. They had been hearing over and over, you must have this righteousness that you can gain by works of the law. You must see that you have to do this and this and this and this in order to be accepted by God. Everything that the Judaizers were teaching about was personified in Paul's life. He was the one who had done this better than any of them. So they should have looked at him and said, he is our great example. Be like him if you want God to love you. Let's shift gears here for a moment and come to our second point. Let's consider your righteous resume. If you were to try to convince somebody that you were a righteous individual, what items would you add to your list? Paul gives a pretty extensive resume here, but what bullet points would you add to yours? Would you include your baptism or maybe how many things you've given up to follow Jesus? Maybe you would focus on the number of friends that you have lost, or maybe you would set your focus on the number of people that you have led to Christ. 
Perhaps you would speak about the amount of money that you have given to the church or how much you have helped missionaries. Maybe you could add page after page of all the ways that you have spent your time in order to serve the poor or to feed the homeless or to help out a borough pregnancy counseling center or to teach children's church or vacation Bible school. We could populate our own lists and make pretty extensive arguments that I've done so much here. God should love me. He should delight in me. I have earned it. Here's my resume. I just uh, made my first resume in seven years because uh, as I've been working through this process with potentially merging with Gateway, they asked me for one. So I put together a resume and I, you know, added the things necessary that I think would be helpful for them to know about my work background and my education and references and things that they might want to see. Uh, and as I was putting this together, I was, I was amazed at how you can fit 15 years of ministry onto such a small space. You could just fill all this stuff up, all this time and effort and energy and all those years of blood, sweat, and tears. It's all squeezed into such a tiny little thing that people are going to read so quickly. Do you know how much righteousness is in here? Do you know how much I have worked to fill this thing up? Do you know how much this has gotten me? Nothing. Nothing. It has gained me nothing with God. It has not earned me any favor with Him. That is not why I have done these things, and it is not why you should either. We do not gain God's favor by working harder for the kingdom. It does not make Him love us much. These things do not add up to one drop in your empty bucket of righteousness or mine. Your works do not give you one iota of a chance at reaching heaven. They do nothing to gain favor with God. Are you placing your confidence in works? I want to talk now, I've been a little vague about this, but I want to draw a very sharp line here. There are some who are unbelievers who have falsely thought that they will achieve heaven, that they will enter into eternity, into glory, because of the things they have done. If you are under that false belief, then you are dangerously misled and you are running as fast as you can go in the direction of hell. That is exactly where Paul was when he was running towards Damascus in order to persecute more Christians. He was pursuing them to death, thinking that he was on his way to heaven. Is that you today? Are you trusting in a resume like Paul was in order to get you into heaven? It does not work. There is no ticket that you can purchase. There is no way you can make some kind of bargaining chip with God, with your actions. Consider what Paul has to say about his resume, verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, all this stuff, all of this I have mentioned to you, all of these good things, the years that I put into it, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. It's, just, it's not just neutral. This is negative. This is not working for me. It's actually working against me because it is giving me a self-righteousness that is dangerous. He says, indeed, I, counted, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice that last phrase, that I may gain Christ. Again, I want you to see the stakes here. When Paul rips up his resume, it is not just to be bombastic. It is not just to grab your attention. He is doing this because he is screaming that you must not trust in those things. If you do, you are doomed. He is telling you the only way to gain Christ is to view all of those works that you have done, that you believe were gaining you righteousness, 
to view all of them as worthless. They have no value. In fact, worse than that, they have negative value. If you want to barter, you have to have something to exchange. You have to have something that people will want. If you go up to the table and you say, hey, I really want that watch, and the guy says, okay, well, what do you have to give me? Well, I don't have any money. Well, what else do you have? Well, let me go over here, and you go over to the trash can, and you start digging around, and you find a banana peel, and you bring it back up and throw it on the table. Do you think he's going to accept that? Of course he will not accept that. Nobody wants your garbage. And here, he says, God is not impressed by your list of good deeds. He's looking at that and saying, that is garbage. He is not looking at your resume and saying, wow, wow, you know, I've never seen anything like this before. I just have to have this guy as part of my kingdom. Let's, let's bring this one in. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that even our most righteous of deeds, the things that you and I have done, that we would count as our most righteous actions, he views them like filthy blood-stained rags. They're not just neutral to God, they are offensive to him. And that is the best stuff that you and I do. It's the best things that we wrap up as a gift and say, here you go, God. This should appease you. This should make you love me. Paul says that he counts all of the stuff that he used to do, all of the stuff that he used to view as valuable, he views it as a net negative. These things not only failed to bring his balance of righteousness up, they actually dropped his level of righteousness even lower. When you imagine that you can earn God's favor, or if you imagine that you can buy him off with a few days of acting like a good person, he is deeply offended. So Paul explains that he needed to repent of all of these good things. He needed to repent of trusting in those things for his salvation. He needed to reject those things. Which brings us now to our third point, Christ's righteous resume. Look with me to verse 9. He says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Your greatest need is righteousness. You don't have any of your own. You can't produce any on your own. The argument that Paul is making here is one that only has a single possible conclusion, which is you must receive righteousness from somewhere else. Or to be more specific, you must receive it from someone else. This is the teaching that the Reformers referred to as alien righteousness. God provides what God demands. God demands that you have righteousness. He demands that you be perfectly righteous. But He gives that to us freely in Christ. He makes it incredibly clear. The law does not do you any good here. It doesn't help you. Righteousness only comes to a person when they have faith in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? It means that we must trust that His life, His obedience to the Father, His good works have been credited to us. It means that when Jesus died on the cross, He paid for the sins of His people. Yes, it means that He paid them all. Our debts are gone. So that brings us up to zero. 
But it's more than that because it says that he also grants us or imputes to us his own righteousness. Every good thing he has ever done is now on my account. I have gone from a negative to being forgiven, brought to zero, but also given an infinite amount of his righteousness. This is a perfect but unfair trade. He gets all my sin and I get all of his righteousness. Yes, we need to rejoice in this kind of loving God. If you are a Christian, you know that you have no other argument. You have no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died. Now he died for me. You must be able to declare that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That alone is of value for the forgiveness of your sin. That alone is of value for your salvation because his righteousness His righteousness is your greatest need. When you're tempted to stand on your own merits, as a Christian, now I'm speaking to those who are believers, this will happen to you. You will do some good things. You will fill up a ledger of things that you have worked towards, of the ways that you have served, and you should. As a believer, you should do these good things. And you're going to begin at some point to be tempted to think, wow, God must really look at this list and be so... So blessed to have me as part of his family. He must look at this and say, wow, look how great I am. Look at all these wonderful works. Look at all these beautiful deeds. Look at all the ways that I have served so faithfully. You need to understand there is nothing more that you can do to increase his love towards you. God is never going to love you more because of your actions, and he's never going to love love you less. So let that love motivate you to respond with the right kind of obedience. Most of you know my son Mordecai. He'll be here in the second service. He's two. And Mordecai is reaching that point in his life where that independent streak has begun to kick in a little bit. So one thing that's so interesting with children is that they are really bad at hiding their thoughts like you and I are. They are really bad at putting on a mask. They are really bad at hiding their sinful hearts. So where you and I might do something with a smile, but in our hearts we are grumbling, children don't do that. They just grumble on the outside. Sometimes Kai will obey us with a happy heart. It's time to clean up, Kai. And he'll joyfully dawdle around and he'll pick up the toys and put them away. And he'll laugh and he'll sing as he helps us clean up. And then he'll finish. And sometimes he'll even run over to us and he'll hug us and he'll say, I love you, Mommy. I love you, Daddy, with his sweet little voice. However, there are other times when he is obeying us outwardly. He is doing what we have commanded him to do. But he makes it very clear to us he doesn't want to. He is just doing what he has to do in order to avoid discipline. The question that we need to ask ourselves in regard to this text is very simple. If works don't count towards gaining any righteousness, if they don't add anything to our righteous balance, then why do them? If it doesn't improve our relationship with God, if it doesn't make him love us more, Why even bother obeying him at all? Why bother following his commands? And the answer is because he has loved you. Christian, you and I have the ability to respond by dedicating our lives joyfully serving the master. If you know you have been loved, if you know that he has set his affection upon you, the Bible teaches us that the natural response of the human heart is to grow in a pattern of loving him back. We love you, 
because you first loved us. It's not a question. It's not that we can love you or that we will or that we may love you or that we have an opportunity to love you. No, there is a reality that Christians love God because he loved us first. It is the response of the human heart to not always get it right every time, but to grow in a pattern of Christ likeness because we love him back. And what does he say? If you love me, you will obey my commands. We are called to honor him not out of a pharisaical code of harsh law-keeping. No, law-keeping never gives you joy. How is it that this gives you joy? It gives you joy because it is loving the one who has loved you. So how does this all ground together in joy? How does this become the foundation for our joy? Because if God has given you his own righteousness by the death of his own son, then you have every cause to have all joy at all times, knowing that if I mess up today, God's going to love me. But I don't want to mess up today. I want to live for him. So I'm not standing on my righteousness, but God, I want to be like you. I want to grow into that righteousness that you have given to me. I want to be conformed into that picture of your beloved son. I want to be like him. I don't want to be like Mordecai, who's cleaning up toys and just doing the outward thing, you know, the right thing outwardly. No, I, I want to inwardly Love you every second, Lord. Let's finish off right where we started. Knowing that Christ has given you his righteousness allows us to genuinely rejoice in the Lord. So for those who have been redeemed, let's do just that. And for those who are here, if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus in a saving way, please understand that there is nothing that you can bring. We sing a song, Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. You can't bring anything to God and say, here's my list of good things. You need to realize that you are bankrupt. You've got nothing to offer him. Simply come and recognize that he has all the righteousness that you need. Your greatest need is, is something you can have freely if you will only believe that Jesus loved you by laying down his life for you, and paying for your sin, giving you his righteousness, and rising again and living today to be your savior. And today can be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you provide what we need, that you provide what you demand, that you demand us to be righteous, and you have given that to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that for every person here who knows you, who has been redeemed, who has been given your righteousness, that we will not waver. Now, why this fear? Why this unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for us? Lord, You have given us everything in Your Son. Help us to delight in that and have genuine joy because of that. And Father, we also pray for anyone here who doesn't know You, who is currently walking in rebellion away from You. Lord, I pray that You would turn their hearts, tear up their resumes, and bring them to Yourself. Give them Christ's righteous resume, we pray. Amen.